the power for me is the expressiveness of the language, how so tightly and concisely you can uh, express very complicated computations, nested arrays you could have because of nested arrays, you could have functions inside data, inside data, inside functions, nest in a nested multidimensional way. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. My name is Connor, and today with us we have a special guest who we will introduce in a moment, but first we'll go around and do brief introductions with our four panelists. We'll start with Stephen, then go to Bob, then to Marshall, then to Adam. Uh, I'm Stephen Taylor. I'm an uh, APL and Q enthusiast. Yeah, this, this episode I'm going to be an enthusiast. Well, I'm always an enthusiast for Jay, so I will join Stephen and I am Bob Terrio, a Jay enthusiast. I'm Marshall Lockbaum. I'm actually a Singeli enthusiast, but a few years ago I made BQN and I still work on it from time to time. I'm Adam Brzezewski. I remain enthusiastic about APL. And as mentioned before, my name's Connor. I am a polyglot programmer with a enthusiasm as well for all the array languages. <laughs> um, all right, so we have a, a few announcements to go through. I think we'll go to Adam first, who's got two, and then I'll spin the bottle for our last two announcements, and then we'll get to our conversation with today's guest. Okay, so... The 2023 APL Problem Solving Competition has concluded and the winners have been chosen. Congratulations to them. We'll leave a link to information about that. And, um, well, winning, breadwinning, Dialog is seeking a system administrator slash enterprise architect. So this isn't really an APL programmer, but it's in the general area. It's part of Dialog Limited, of course. If you're interested, have a look. We'll include a link. Awesome. Let's go to Marshall next. All right. Um, I have an announcement which probably doesn't concern too many people, but uh, maybe some people have have, have run into this. Um, CBQN, which is the C implementation of BQN, has been licensed under the GNU programming license. The programming? Something. GPL version 3, which is a pretty strict open source license that requires you to like license all this stuff, if you if you make something that incorporates CBQ and you have to license everything under the GPL and so on. Zyma has uh, led the effort to actually change it to a more permissive license. So we got all the contributors to agree to this as well. Um, change it to a more permissive license. So we're switching it to the Mozilla public license, which allows you to do things like incorporate it into another project without necessarily licensing that under the MPL. Um, as well as a AGPL, which is pretty similar. So yeah, if, if you've run into any licensing issues where you want to incorporate CBQ in, into some other open project, uh, it may be easier for you now. Awesome. And with that, we will go to our last announcement from Stephen. And I just want to say a big thank you to the people who stepped forward uh, to help me work on my book. You may remember I'm working on a book on vector programming in Q in how to retrain your brain from that um, one potato, two potato um, looping approach through to working with vectors. And a number of people have reached out and um, working with them at the moment, one-on-one -on, -one on tutorials. We may get to a group later on. I'm learning a lot about what the barriers are and what kind of help people need. Having a lot of fun working our way through some uh, amusing problems in queue and um, 
I've got bandwidth for a few more people if there's anybody else interested. Awesome. So as always, links for everything will be in our show notes if you want to check those out. And without further ado, today's guest is Lynn Sutherland. Lynn has been for, I believe, the past nine plus years, an industrial technology advisor for the National Research Council of Canada. But on top of that, over the past few decades, she has held a plethora of titles. I will rattle through, I think, all of them, which is Chief Operating Officer, Founder, Director, Executive Director, Vice President, President, Board Member, and Advisor to a ton of companies, which I think will let her highlight the ones she wants to. So she's been in the industry and is a veteran of what she's been working on. We reached out to Lynn, I believe, a few months ago to see if she wanted to come on and talk about the NIAL programming language, which I just recently, that's N-I-A-L for, you know, to be unambiguous, and that I recently learned stands for Nested Interactive Array Language. It came out of Queen's University, which is where I believe Lynn uh, encountered the language and did her undergrad uh, before going on to do, I believe you did your master's somewhere else. And so we've brought her on, but before we talk about Niao, maybe I can let Lynn, I'll throw it over to you, and you can give us a brief summary of your, uh, you know, immense experience that you've had over the past decades, and uh, yeah, fill in any of the sort of spaces that I've, I've left out here, and yeah, over to you. Okay, thanks, Connor. Uh, hello, everybody. First, I'll, I'll say the way I got introduced to this group is I stumbled across uh, the Discord channel talking about APL-like languages. And um, I saw that there was a stream talking about Nial, and I couldn't believe anybody was uh, aware of this language that we worked on in the 1980s. But it's an awesome language, and that's what I'll talk about the most. But you asked me for my history from there. Um, uh, so just going way back, starting there... Um, you know, as a research assistant at Queens, et cetera, et cetera. We'll get into the details of that. Uh, we start and we started a company to make this language popular or try to sell it or all of that. That was in the early 80s. It was interesting times and uh, didn't completely succeed. So then I moved to Calgary, Alberta, where I currently reside. Started working here at the Alberta Research Council, uh, doing applied research and actually quickly moved into artificial intelligence and robotics. And now remember, this was in the late 80s. And it's all coming back now. <laughs> We're, uh, even that's coming back around. At a time, I did some policy work for, for the government of Alberta about uh, increasing the number of people in information communications technology. Uh, for about seven years, I was recruiting professors and grad students in key areas into Alberta, including artificial intelligence, quantum computing, uh, high-performance computing, wireless, et cetera. And at one point in that journey, I was uh, I ran the high-performance uh, network in Alberta, so the research network. And then from there, we spun off the first cloud computing company in Canada um, somewhere around 2008. And at that time, the term cloud wasn't even known, or it was... There were clouds. There were clouds, yes. We might have... Uh, co computational clouds were not exactly known, and they might have been called grids in the high-performance computing world. Amazon did, and people were starting to call it the cloud at that time, uh, but it was uh, mostly only known in the academic community. But some of the people that uh, that I was working with, we decided to spin off the first cloud computing company. Uh, that was around 2008. Um, 
there was a macro world financial meltdown around 2008-2009, and so that uh, impacted tech companies at the time. More recently, I worked for the National Research Council as an IRAP industry technology advisor, which means I coach and mentor and fund uh, technology-based companies in Canada. Um, and I work primarily with software companies, SaaS companies, uh, AI companies in Calgary, um, in Canada. That's the story. Is that because um, I'm I'm familiar with the Mars Institute, which is sort of based or co-located with the University of Toronto. Is there like a similar uh, program that you work closely with in in Alberta, or is it the Research Council of Canada is is kind of different from that? No, well, every every province, especially say the four, you know, the the, the big ones, Ontario, Quebec, and British Columbia, and then Alberta. Um, every city or university will have a technology hub like Mars. Mars is the one that's sort of the biggest one in Canada associated with the University of Toronto. In Alberta, our innovation program, I did work for them. They were called the Alberta Research Council, but now they've rebranded their Alberta Innovates. And then in Calgary, there's a tech hub called Platform where all, you know, incubator, there's, you know, technology incubators all over the world in every city, uh, close to every university, you know, any any jurisdiction that cares about tech will have these technology type uh, incubators, accelerators, programs. Government, either whether it's federal government, provincial government, even municipal governments who care about uh, growing their tech sector will have uh, facilities and programs in these areas. That's very cool. And what was the name of it? Was it VR Storm? Was that the name of the first cloud company or... The cloud company that we started, uh, if you're, yeah, we, we uh, have got lots of rabbit holes if we want to go down some of them. <laughs> <laughs> VR Storm. At the time, we were, it was, we were just talking about virtual machine. You know, it was primarily the ability to um, run lots of virtual machines on. We were getting, you know, some 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 chips and some processors that uh, had, uh, you know, more than one processing power. We could virtualize a lot of things. So the VR, it wasn't for virtual reality. Uh, it was just a storm of uh, virtual machines. Interesting. Well, maybe we'll maybe uh, we'll come back to that uh, at a certain point because yeah, we don't want to we don't want to rabbit hole for fifty minutes and then everyone's going to be like, what about uh, Neal? <laughs> so yeah, maybe we'll skip back to uh, your time at Queens and you can tell us the story how you ended up stumbling into Neal and array languages in general. As it, I'm sure you have some familiar with familiarity with uh, you know the ecosystem of APL and, and J and whatnot, or at least you know you can you can tell us to what to Agree. I haven't been following the area of array languages, but I will pick up a bit more now that I know that there are people who are actually uh, interested in this area because it, it it's an incredibly uh, powerful um, programming paradigm. I was doing math and computer science at Queens. I remember, and this was uh, say 1980. Like, give it context. Is that's 44 years ago? It's a long time ago. Um, I was an undergrad, finishing third year. Wanted to stay in Kingston, beautiful town in Canada, little city, and uh, went around asking for jobs of the professors, and uh, and you know got hired as a research assistant on the Neal project. Um, back then, the language didn't exist, and uh, the founders came from the APL community. So let me get into that a bit. Who the characters back then were, or who some of the players were. 
Okay, so the lead professor at Queen's, Mike Jenkins. And this is where I don't know, I don't know how much people know about Neil. So I'm going to give the detail, you know, some of the details. So Mike Jenkins was the lead professor at Queen's. Trenchard Moore. Trenchard Moore was um, a mathematician for, uh, who worked for IBM, but came from Princeton. His, his background was from Princeton. He's the founder of array theory. And so Trenchard was a key, you know, it was pretty much Mike and Trenchard who were, who took the concepts from, you know, the, the, the foundational APL programming paradigms and merged them with Trenchard's array theory and designed this Nial language from scratch. Now Nial stands for Nested Interactive Array Language. It didn't have a name at the time, same way the cloud didn't have a name for a while there. Um, this language didn't have a name, but eventually we called it Nial, also the name of a Norse legendary god, the god of truth and justice and law, although spelt with a J. And there was, in fact, um, researchers from primarily Denmark, but APL was very hot in the Scandinavia at the, at the time, or, you know, um, so there was APL enthusiasts from Scandinavia. There was uh, Trenchard from IBM and uh, IBM Cambridge, Boston. So essentially on the MIT campus there and uh, the group at Queens. Um, so we had a research group at Queens and we were designing a new language. And we you know, it was basically being designed from scratch. And we wanted all the power of the, the functions and the operators of APL, but we didn't want the funny characters, so we gave them all reasonable names. And we also wanted procedural programming abilities, because that's the way most people, like a lot of people think. So we wanted to combine sort of, you know, uh, looping and conditionals, but also power of operators. Um, and anyways, we were we were building this from scratch. Uh, and let me describe the computational power back at that time. How we had what, what like the tools that we had. We would program on a Vax mini computer, micro mini computer, um, and we and we had and we and we run some tests on that. We also had the first IBM PCs ever in Canada <laughs> um, that had uh, 64k originally memory. 256, you know, for the researchers. <laughs> and you could only talk to 64K at a time. And you had, you know, anyway, we would we would compile our code on the VAX, maybe run some tests, and then we cross-compile it and put it on uh, IBM PCs because our research was kind of being funded or supported at least by IBM. We'd put it on the IBM PC. We'd have to do magic to get it run on the on the PC, but we were running, you know, this powerful programming language on the on uh, Vax seven fifties and seven eighties and uh, IBM XTs or uh, you know, the first version. They didn't even have a hard drive. So um, the power for me is the expressiveness of the language, how so tightly and concisely you can. Uh, express very complicated computations, nested arrays. You can operate on loop. You can, you know, use an each. We called it the each operator. There's most, you know, with express parallelism with one word. You could have, because of nested arrays, you could have 
functions inside data, inside data, inside functions, nest in a nested, multi-dimensional way. Um, so we were building this. We were writing users' manuals. We were porting it. You know, once we had a pretty stable compile, uh, stable version, we started porting it to multiple different platforms because that was there's a Unix boom going on at the time. So. Um, Telcos, AT&T were being broken up because computers were pretty new and networks were pretty new at the time. There's a lot going on. I got to pause there because I just rambled on for a while. Uh, I've got I've got a question, Lynn. Um, at that point, Neil was um, was interpreted, right? It wasn't compiled. Is that right? Neil is always interpreted. Yes, it's an interpreted language, but we to build the we had to build to build the interpreter. We had to compile. The the code the interpreter was compiled, okay, and we and the the interpreter the Neal interpreter is written in C, and you would get a compiler that would compile for either Unix platform or like a cr cross compiler would compile for the PC platform, or you'd use the compiler of whatever back back then. There's a lot of Unix machines now popping up like sun microsystems started the time amdahl there was silicon graphics or so, like the start of lots of different uh unix machine companies and they'd have their own compiler and even though unix is sort of standard you'd have to compile on each machine but yeah niel itself is an interpreted language and it, it was a nested array uh language right that was part of trenchard moore's theory of arrays was he was nested arrays so um even I believe even scalars are considered arrays. Is that correct? Yes, everything is an array. Let me describe Trenchard's work a little bit. It's foundational, and I hope it doesn't disappear. And I have some hard copies of all of his reports and read all of his reports. They're all from the '70s and '80s, and it's 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 a uh, it's a whole field of mathematics which is involves these nested arrays. And so even scale so. You know, vector. There's vectors that may have one dimension. Arrays can have any number of dimensions, and even scalars, you know, are sort of considered to have zero dimensions. And any array, any object can contain other, like any array object can contain other array objects. And even functions and operators are are, are arrays that have a value uh, and can be contained inside arrays. This is where I don't know what the modern line, how, you know, how modern. So maybe I can give some context, APL context to that. Um, so Trenchard Moore is definitely recognized in APL's history. Um, Jim Brown, I, I would say, is the big name associated with this nested theory, which is um, which is what the APL implementations now almost all use. But Trenchard Moore is definitely recognized as, as contributing a whole lot to it. Um, and I would say his name is probably even more prominent than the Neil programming language. So the function and operator thing is what I'm pretty interested in because APLs definitely don't, well, they almost definitely don't do that. There's there's some weird mechanism um, in dialogue, particularly where you can take an array of namespaces and then you take a function out of each namespace. And then you get this thing that's sort of an array of functions, but you can't like, it's not very easy to work with. So, so dialogue doesn't like really say, oh, you can make an array of functions. That's not what it is. But um. Yeah, the nested theory, as far as I know, they're exactly the same. So they share the idea that the um, the enclose of a simple scalar, like a number, is the same thing. So if you 
like you keep enclosing it and it just stays the same array and you can disclose it as well and it's still the same and yeah that's the major feature there's another branch in like sharp apl um that doesn't have this so it's called um that enclosing thing is often called floating and the other model is grounded um which i don't know if we really need to get into because that's you know veering pretty far away from neil but so yeah this um this array theory was definitely very influential. If you're thinking about it as a math array theory as, as a, a mathematical domain, and you want all kinds of operators to like to work interchangeably, um, things like you know associativity and and commutivity and the, the basic things that you want in a in a math world, like you want reciprocal functions, like you want to have an inverse function so you can untransform them back, and that you want to have math to hold in every case because then it makes the the simplicity of what the what the language does or how to use it or you know makes it even more simple. So we worked on um, a lot of that the theor theoretical part. We had lots of debates about what to do in certain uh, certain conditions and what it meant mathematically. What would help hold most mathematically consistently? And we wanted I don't know that we wanted to balance that. We had to we wanted to hold true to that but also to make it a very easy to use program programming language. So uh, we did our best at that time to combine those two things, sort of the, the mathematical pureness of what we were doing, being able to, where everything is an array, whether it has zero dimensions or any N dimensions and anything can hold anything is sort of, that's some of the fundamental part of, the math behind the language, but we also wanted to make it a very, very expressive and usable language, which I think we did. And, you know, in the 40 years that have passed, um, you know, there's divergence of different array languages. I can see that from, you know, what I'm uncovering now about the state of the world. It wouldn't it be nice? I'll just say that if um, there was one array language that everybody could agree on and, and we could... Uh... And they all picked mine. <laughs> <laughs> And we could promote the power, you know, the power of this kind of programming uh, to the world. It would, be, it would be great. I still, you know, I, I'm a big, big fan and I think mentally in arrays and I don't do much. I don't do it very little programming these days and very little program or language promotion. So you mentioned that you mentioned that they or they Mike and I'm not sure if Trenchard was a part of that. They started a company. Was that that was that company started b before you started your work? And I think you said it was the summer after your third year um, at, at Queens or w was that after? And what's the story behind the attempt at kind of commercializing and, and promoting the, the, the Neo language? Uh, there's two things that went on in that time. So one um, and let's give it a year. Let's say, let's give it a start year, 1980. But it started before that. It started in the late 70s. But let's say starting 1980, um, but the language didn't exist. We're writing the compiler, et cetera. Then sometime, okay, the creating of a company, a number of things happened. A company to commercialize this uh, we, we, was, was created, and that was called Neal Systems Limited, sometime around that time at also at the same time another thing that happened that was very significant like by the time we had like a full version that we could port to different different computers and things it was the company that started doing that like we started trying to make it commercially available at some point i moved from the being a researcher after i graduated maybe i, I moved to becoming the, the only employee 
and <laughs> the the programmer, the um, bookkeeper, no, whatever, everything. Just you, you know, you're so, reporting HR complaints to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so I I was the employee, but also the same the similar around that time. And this was um, the year was eighty three to eighty four. The Neal, the Queens Neal Group went to, on sabbatical at MIT into at on campus at MIT, but IBM Cambridge was right across the street and, and lots of other researchers came and worked on the project and, you know, did more, some more of the project, whether it's a theory work or the research work, the academic work. Um, but at the same time, we were sort of, we were com- trying to port it to as many new Unix machines as possible and get paying users. That's what you do when you're a, a company. And we did, you know, at the time get some it was insurance companies or people who were who were you who were using. It was people who used APL at the time uh, who wanted uh, you know a, a language that ran on all any of the new Unix machines and uh, you know you could easily one for one kind of take an APL code and kind of rewrite it into Neal code that had all the same similar operators or you know very very similar operators and. And even more power. So we were we were making a few sales here and there. I have a box of all my Neal stuff from that time. So I'm um, I keep things, I collect things, and I have one full box of uh, Neal content from uh, that time. And I have uh, Trenchard was giving a course at MIT on array theory. I have the notes from the like the grad course that. I took at MIT at the time. Um, I know this is a this is an audio recording, but I'll show other people who are on the call here. There was a magazine called Computer Language at the time, so there was enthusiasts talking about computer languages. Like computing was pretty new back then. So, uh, and well, and now there's just lots of people who talk about different programming languages and paradigms and things. But in, it was in a different way back then. It was it seemed pretty uh, new and exciting. And the other thing I want to mention is I also uncovered in the box that I went through my office mate at Queens and another person who came down to MIT with us, uh, Carl McCroskey. He went on to become a professor and he and I have his PhD thesis and it was on creating a processor, a microprocessor, a Neal-specific microprocessor. Just, I just think these languages are express parallelism so well. Um, they're so powerful. Now I think, wouldn't it be neat if there was a an array processor running you know, that could run arrays? Kind of sounds like a GPU. <laughs> kind of sounds like a modern CPU, to be honest. Uh, you, you may not know this. The um... One of Intel's latest instruction sets, the AVX five twelve, has instructions that are just taken straight from APL, including the names. It's got compress and expand. Yeah, it's great that the, these capabilities are becoming available on uh, at the chip level. Although, if you have to program at the chip level, yikes! I don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, here's another aside and rabbit hole that I won't go into in deep way, but the whole now that we have a large language model, generative AI, all that, all of uh, transformer architectures and things like that, that obviously uses massive parallelism. And I don't, I don't know how they express that. Although there was a time when I did parallelize uh, neural networks, because obviously they're parallelizable, uh, but that was also 35 years or 40 years ago. I mean, I don't know in great detail, but I do know that OpenAI released a programming model called OpenAI, um, for listeners that aren't aware, is the company behind ChatGPT that 
you know, you could argue popularized this massive wave that's, you know, going through the industry right now. And they released a programming model called uh, Triton, um, not to be confused with NVIDIA's Triton. It's OpenAI's Triton. And it is a kind of dialect of, you know, you write in Python, but it, it exposes to you operators that are basically similar to the kind of APL array-like where you are performing, you know, some kind of binary scalar operation on a matrix and a vector and stuff like that. So, you know... You can play around with it. It's obviously a far, you know, away away from the convenience of array languages. But if you do play around with it, it does have some stuff that uh, you can see kind of the shadows of uh, array programming and array languages like APL and such um, influencing it, which is, I mean, you can say that about all like NumPy and all the popular frameworks and in insert your language. Um, they all kind of are inspired at some point if you follow the the historical lineage back to APL or a language like that. Nice. Yeah. Thanks. I'm learning about things like that through, uh, through this conversation here. So Connor, you were talking about like starting the company and that time. So I know to say, let's say 83, 84 ish. I'll just describe a few things at that time. One, the Apple Macintosh was released in 84. So this is putting the computational power or in, in context that was like the very first Mac showed up at the, um, the MIT bookstore or library and everybody would go and go, ooh, ah. <laughs> and it too, it, at the time, it didn't have a hard drive. When it, it also had, you know, all it had was a floppy disk at the time. There was APL conferences. I recall going to APL conferences. Actually, I recall APL 84 was in Helsinki. But the, eventually, it didn't take too long, two years or so. Uh, we realized, you know, this, uh, we weren't going to have a lot of paying customers immediately. So we went our separate ways. That's when I moved to Calgary. Uh, I still kept in touch with the, the Queens group forever for, for a long time, still do a little bit. That was essentially the end of my, uh, involvement directly. And, and, and we open sourced. So Queens had given the rights to the language to our company, Neal Systems Limited. We decided to wind down the company and we open sourced the the code. So was the the business model was uh similar, although I don't exactly Adam can correct me if I'm wrong, uh if I'm misspeaking about dialogue limited, but you're uh selling the executable or however you're releasing the interpreter, uh so it's closed source at the time. And, you know, for reasons that that was a challenge. And after a couple of years or several years, you decided to just open source the code code and, and wind down the project. Um, your Lynn's not the listener can't see, but Lynn is nodding her head. So um, did was the, do you know if at the time there was uh, any alternative? Like, because I know there's a handful of uh, companies that are trying to build their company around a language. Julia is an example of a language that did that, and they've been successful to a certain extent. Closure is a Lisp that also, and and so there's different business models. You know, there are some similar to Dialogue Limited, and uh, KX has their Q programming language, where they are basically selling the language and you have to pay some kind of fee. And there's others like Julia and Clojure that give the language away for free and then try to build either some kind of consulting company around it or, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's definitely a, uh, especially these days now in the world of open source, it's a very challenging thing to build a company around a language. 
do you know at the time though in the mid 80s it sounded like were, were other alternatives considered or was it this was kind of the one attempt and then it it wasn't proving successful enough because it does sound like you did have some customers and then you just decided to wind it down uh at the time the dominant uh software revenue model was licensing and executable and then perhaps adding on consulting uh or or monthly maintenance fees or things like that. So that, um, but th there was an open source movement at the time still. And, you know, this was Unix before Linux, um, but there's the open source Unix and there's companies that would support, companies that would support open source Unix at the time. So um, Red Hat, you know, their revenue model being supporting an open source uh, operating system. Um, but ours, it was, it was, we would sell the executable for whatever operating system, whatever hardware you were running, it was an on-prem executable, like license for an executable. You know, in my thinking about the evolution of programming languages, um, this was pre-Java, and even Sun Microsystems is gone, and uh, uh, things like that. So, you, uh, I think it's very difficult to sell programming language, if not impossible. You can enhance an open source tool. You can you can programming tools. You can programming environments. Support expertise um, this leads now into like now what i do now is i coach software say startup companies or technology companies uh, it's it's very difficult although you want to have a technology that is a platform so a language is a platform you can do anything with it very difficult to sell a generic platform and especially these days like this, everything's open source people expect to get their code for free almost and in fact, openness of code these days is what's helping the area grow exponentially or the capabilities of code and humanity to kind of scale or grow exponentially because it's all available to everybody, I think. But the business business models around code or um, selling, selling languages are a big challenge, very challenging. Yeah, I was just checking and at least according to my rankings that I've compiled, I think all 20 of the top 20 programming languages are free. The The most popular one that is paid for is MATLAB, which I just actually looked up and uh, coincidentally was initially founded in 84. So right around the time that uh, Nia was being worked on as well. Um, Steven, I think you, you've uh, wanted to ask something. Yeah, thanks. I'm very interested in this period of the early 80s. Because that's pretty much when APL usage went into a very steady decline. And the business model that was operating before that, at any rate, in the world I saw, it was primarily time-sharing revenue. So people will pay for the processing because uh, before PCs, APL was pretty much the way in which you could get any kind of personal computing done. APL and BASIC, and we used to um, beat the pants off basic programmers. Uh, you were mentioning earlier, Lynn, that uh, APL programs could be pretty easily translated into NIL, and a major obstacle for getting APL onto the early PCs, which is where people wanted to move their personal computing because they really didn't want to be paying those time-sharing bills. Um, the major obstacle was you just couldn't do the character set. And I'm wondering what your experience was, because you'd, you'd have this big r reservoir at the time of APL customers who'd be wanting to get off the timesharing services. 
I wonder if you got any memories you can share of that. In retrospect, it would have made sense to probably just sell to APL users and have a, almost, you know, whether it's a converter or just a, instructions on how to convert your APL to Neal or to go at it that way. I'm not, I don't think we really did that. Um, it was APL users who are, who were our early adopters of, of the Neal language, but I think there might've been too many shifts going on at the time. I don't know, you know, uh, in fact, I don't know, not factions, uh, but leaders and leaderships and thoughts in different directions that were even happening at APL and at the time. So I don't know the how big the market for selling a language and a new on a new platform um, could have been too disruptive at the time. It could have been us not marketing well at the time. I'm sure there, that had a lot to do with it. We had no idea what we were doing. We were starting a company trying to sell a language that we thought everybody would buy. Uh, that's how a lot of entrepreneurs, what a lot of entrepreneurs think that if I build it, they'll just, my customers will just flock to my fabulous product. I don't know. I, I don't know what dynamics led to us not particularly succeeding. And then, um, but APL declining, I, I, you know, we knew that a barrier to APL moving onto more commodity hardware, like personal computers was the character set like that you know that it was it was it was, that was very foreign to be able to make programming accessible to normal people <laughs> people who couldn't think in character sets or whatever um that, that was a huge barrier to APL uh success you know transition to the personal computer generation I guess and you know we had we had a solution to that but we didn't really know how to sell it or who would want it. Uh, we didn't have a market really for that at the time. I guess the other functionality that you sort of introduced with Neil, and I think you mentioned early on, is the you had procedural aspects of it too. So if you were making that transition, it was a little easier to ease yourself into the array mindset. Definitely, you could take other pro you could take procedural languages and um, uh, move them into the interpreter. Like we were we were an interpreter. We were also also sort of like a piped or a piped language, like you could pipe things into the interpreter and have things come out like Java ultimately. So I think Java was the thing that ultimately succeeded from the work that was being done in the, in the general area. Uh, yeah. So procedure, so you could, you could have, if you just, if you wanted to take a procedural algorithm that written procedurally, you could just translate that into pretty easily into Neil also, because we used if then statements or the assign you know assignments in the same kind of uh, similar syntax to procedural languages, um, and then you could uh, you could just wrap it and make it a function if you wanted to, and more powerful than uh, than could be communicated at the time possibly. Well, and I guess the other thing is you were mentioning was the fact that you could use your operators and put them into arrays, which. Even today, I, I I know it can be done with BQN with Marshall's language, but a lot of APLs, it's not something that's done easily. J sort of fudges something like that with its gerunds, but that's a really awkward, you know, approach to trying to do anything at any kind of capacity. So Neil, Neil, I think probably had the jump on a lot of other language with that. Was was there anything else that you're aware of doing the first order, the high order functions? operators with at that time 
And actually, I can't imagine if you put operate like if, if you had an, an array of operators, what you would do with that. But you oh, I use it all the time. <laughs> Show us a, a great example, Marshall, of how like. Yeah. So one thing is if you have like if you have if you're going to make a choice and you have um, a number of different things that you might do, um, you might take an array of functions that where each function does a different action and then choose from that array and then evaluate the function you get. I haven't thought of programming in this in this way in a long time. The main things was the mathematical consistency of being able to have reversible operations. So like for ev almost every function, we wanted to have an inverse function that makes it really nice and mathematically sound. So that was one of the uniqueness. The other being in um, a regular keyboard, uh, but having the powerful functions and operators um, and then having operators, functions, and atomic data as as fundamental first-order objects that you could manipulate in the same way. They were the same thing all the time. Like They, they were just a nested array. Everything is a nested array. You, having all of that uh, made it incredibly powerful. I must say, I hadn't realized until I did the Neal tutorial just how many features Neal shared with Q or K. Um, some examples of projection of left arguments. So five plus is uh, is a function in is a unary function in both languages. Um, this simple thing of defining multi multi line functions by as many lines as you indent, just the the indent does it. A direct access to the interpreter. Um, Neal's phrases, the same as K symbols, built in enumerations. Uh, even down to uh, using the term valence for the number of arguments for a function and for the number of dimensions of an array, which uh, which is something that Q does. But Q, in Q and K, of course, you can um, actually apply this implicit application of arrays, so essentially through implicit indexing. And you've got each and, and each both. Um, the use of the at symbol for functional indexing is like I was getting quite shivers running through the tutorial. I also wanted to mention, I, I don't know, Connor, how closely you've looked at this, but I know your fondness for combinators. And I was most impressed at the way that you can use the atlas notation and strand notation in combination um, to get the effect of a combinator. So the I guess the iconic example would be that you could take the two operators, sum and tally, um, <clears throat> and put those into a list, which Neil calls an atlas, which is kind of fun, because if you think of a function as a map, then a list of functions is an atlas. So enclosed in square brackets, sum, column, tally, uh, you juxtapose that to a vector, and you get its sum and its count. And then to the left of that, you write slash for divide. So the um, if you take slash and then that cloud atlas strand notation, you've got without any extra syntactic definitions, you've effectively got a um, point-free programming. It's a, it's a composition. That I thought was <laughs> blew me away. Yeah, I remember looking at um, atlases 
and they were kind of an ad hoc way of building up combinators based on the order of operations. But it, there, it's it's a different approach to what BQN and APL and J do by providing you basically symbols for different composition patterns. You can kind of build up, if I recall, a subset of those. You can't do everything, but if the composition pattern can be built up linearly, because that's basically what an atlas is. It's just a comma delimited set of functions um, in brackets. Yeah, so Adam's putting in the chat, average is slash bracket, some comma tally and bracket, which essentially, if I recall correctly, sum and tally are both unary functions. They each take a single argument. Those two functions will be individually applied to whatever list you give it, so you'll get back the sum of the numbers and then the number of elements in the in the list and then the division is basically a prefix application of a binary function but so you can do probably almost everything you can do or not everything definitely a subset close to everything um but some of it will end up being more verbose like the psi combinator which is what is called over and i believe both bqn and apl is the application of a unary function to uh, two different... Actually, I guess you could just do that. That would be the same thing. No, yeah, so this, I, I was correct. I'm confusing myself. The psi combinator is the application of a unary operation to two different arguments. I don't think you can spell with an atlas because you need to apply uh, a unary operation that is the same to two different arguments and then pass the results of those to a binary function. Um, whereas an atlas, I don't know, can you, I don't think you can pass like an atlas, uh, I'm actually, I, ha I have no idea. Maybe you can do this. Can you pass it a left and right argument and then have two, one function apply to both? You have to give me an example, but we have, there's some, there's each both. So we have some operators that would do that, that kind of thing. There would probably be some way that you could do that, but I can't off the top of my head. Well, maybe you'd want to make an atlas of two of the same function twice. Do, yeah. That there's different, you know, different ways. Like you, you, you would never get an error in the, you could like make it do something. It would do something for you. <laughs> I mean, each both, each both does sound right. Uh, does does yeah, sound each both. correct. Yeah. There's each left, each right, each, each, both. Those are the, sort of the four different ways of uh, describing what to do in some circumstances. Like whether you, yeah, whether you distribute it, like each left would distribute the leftmost thing over everything on the right. Well, these also made it into K. Actually, Stephen might have mentioned these. So I do wonder if Arthur, um, if Arthur studied Neil a bit or if he was reading the same sources as the authors or something like that, because there is a lot in common. Oh, it's quite unnecessary. Canadians are just like telepathically linked. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of the similarities between uh, Q and Nial, when, when Lynn, you mentioned that there was built-in parallelism to the each operator, the very first thought in my head was that, huh, that's interesting. That is, there's one other language that I know that has like a parallel each operator, which is Q. Q has both each and peach. The P, I believe, stands for parallel. So it's not built in parallelism to their each operator, but they have a parallel version of the each operator called peach. And I'm not sure if, if you can recall if if there's two different ones or if there's just one each and it, it just automatically is parallelizing based on some kind of heuristics or um, but that that just that like uh 
that is a very interesting artifact that there are, or at least that I know of, two languages that have this sort of parallel operator built into the language, and that's Q and Niao, for what I know. And I know Jay has added uh, support for threading, and APL has some support for this kind of stuff, but it's not built into, you know, the the each or mapping primitive, if you will. Yeah, the, uh, in the early 80s, there was not no such thing as parallel computers, really. Uh, we had concepts of parallelism, and we started um, conceptualizing parallel algorithms, and when can you parallelize things? And actually, I mean, there was theory about what is parallelizable and what isn't, but we weren't doing parallel code we were but the each operator implied that you could do it it, it was it was peach it, our each was peach but we weren't parallelizing the each it, it was just but conceptually each was parallel well we are past the hour mark but i want to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to ask any last questions before we let uh before we let lynn go i mean i or bob go ahead Oh, well, just one quick question. Um, I believe K and Q allow for multi-attic, like more than two arguments. It was uh, was Niel dyadic? Like it, well, you could have two arguments, but could you have three arguments without doing a little bit of acrobatics? Or was it was it pretty much two or one argument? No, you could have um, as many, many as many arguments uh, to a function as, as you want. The... Um, don't know how you would compose the operators. Some of the built-in operators were kind of two-argument type things, but yeah, it's one of these big limitations of this APL syntax, which is great in its own way. But if you step outside of it, you uh, you kind of notice that a lot of the limitations were not necessarily arbitrary, but uh, but they really were pretty constraining in order to be able to use that all that infix syntax. Wait, so B BQN also adopts that model though right it's it's just unary or binary yeah yeah oh yeah and I, I have thought that sort of there are these features of q that and i guess maybe k as well it, it has to be seeing as q is just wordified k that i think get talked about much less often on this podcast and i'm sure in other <laughs> array language conversations because it's not really that interesting from a notation as a tool of thought kind of point of view of like the number of arguments that a function can take and that it just you know apl bqn j they just they take one they take two that's the way it is um and if you want to take more typically the pattern that i've seen is you just you know you bundle all your arguments up into a, an array and then you just destructure it on the first line and name them and I, I wonder sometimes if like part of the reason that Q, you know, is is been, had found its niche and been very successful uh, in in its in its sort of space is because that is one of the many things that uh, delineates it from other array languages is you can use it in a way that is very similar to other programming, more popular programming languages that people are familiar with, and that you aren't limited to the number of arguments uh, when you're creating your function. You can have however many you want. Um, even even in their, I'm not sure what they call them, anonymous functions or defunds is what they call them in APL, but they, they have X, Y as the first and second argument, but they also have Z um, built in. Like, so they, no, not that that makes a huge difference. Oh, like your, your anonymous functions can have one more argument. Uh, but it is something that like, you know, doesn't really come up much in, oh, let's compare the languages and why would you prefer one of the other? So, I mean, it definitely sounds like if folks are looking for an open source, 
open source array language that doesn't use Unicode or ASCII symbols, you know, typically the one that people get pointed towards is Q, but it's, uh, you know, open, well, not open source. It is available to a certain extent. You can get a license that I believe is either 12 month limited or something like that and has limitations to the number of cores, but you can play around with it if you're not doing commercial things. Uh, but if you are looking for sort of an alternative to that, that is more open source and you can go and play around with the code, it sounds like Neow might be a language worth checking out because it does, you know, I, I checked at the beginning of this episode, neow-array-language.org. It's got a website, it's got documentation. And as you mentioned earlier, Lynn, there is a... How large the community is 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 unknown, but there there definitely is a channel on a Discord that people frequent uh, with some frequency. Um, so yeah, I, I guess maybe that's a, a good spot to leave it. I'm not sure if Lynn, if there's anything else, or we'll let Marshall say. If I can point out one of the big differences, um, Neil being you know Trenchard Moore's array theory coming into that, um, Neil still has the multi-dimensional arrays of APL. So if you tried Q and you, but multidimensional arrays are very important to you. You know, Neil also does that. So that's a pretty big thing. And Adam, you were about to mention one last thing too. That's something we haven't talked about at all is as far as I can tell, Neil is left to right. Whereas all the major array languages are commonly called right to left. And functions have long right scope in APL and J and K and Q and BQN. And in Yale, they have long left scope. Why am I mistaken here? If t 10 plus 1 times 2 in Yale gives 22, because 10 plus 1 is 11 times 2 is 22. In all the languages that we regularly deal with, it would be 1 times 2, which is 2 plus 10 is 12. So that gives a very different feeling, I think, at least, the way you think about expressions. Yeah, I I don't know how, like how like what to comment on about that. I don't know how it compares to a lot of other languages. I think, but I think it would be trying to be more similar to traditional programming languages or the way the order that you read uh, procedural programming languages. I'm, I'm not I'm not sure why that decision or why why exactly it, it goes that way as opposed to the others. But it's the hierarchy, right? That it doesn't it doesn't have a <clears throat> it doesn't have a different hierarchy. It just goes left to right as it's working through its answers as opposed to right to left. Is that right? Well, or as opposed to having, you know, precedence where it does, you know, exponentiation, then multiplication, then addition. Or... Which I think in a lot of math is what you're trying to get away from in these languages is that you can consistently just take a series of symbols and, and process them and not worry about all the hierarchies of pedmass or bedmass, depending on what part of the world you're from. Well, traditional mathematical notation goes both ways when you say that there's equal precedence. Right? If you've got a division, A divided by D, B divided by C divided by D, uh, then most people get all confused. But the rules state you go from left to right. And and if you have A to the power of B to the power of C to the power of D, then the rules state you go from right to left. So that's, of course, the worst of, <laughs> of both worlds. Um, one rule, of course, is better than, than multiple rules and not having a hierarchy, especially when you have so many different functions, it would be unbearable to to remember the order. Just look at and look at the precedence table for something as simple as C. Right? And then look at the precedence table for something like JavaScript. It's hopeless. I mean, so hopeless that some things can't even be in the same statement without parentheses. The interpreters will just say, nah, 
good at parentheses. That <laughs> you got to tell me what you mean. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, right? Because the precedence order is given in the table, but they still complain and say you have to put parentheses. Um, but I, I'm curious to know if it at all is written anywhere. Why the change from APL? I mean, I've much considered that maybe APL should have gone the other way. Um, but that means there's some interesting aspects that I haven't really thought through fully. I don't know if anybody has any ideas about this. Prefix functions, unary functions, monadic if you want, but everything goes from left to right. That's interesting. Yeah, that was the that was the thing that I was just juggling in my head is that you could compare, it's, let's get even more esoteric, you know, uh, you could compare Neal to Smalltalk, which is left to right, but there's still a difference in that uh, unary functions, the argument is on the uh, the left. So you say argument and then you pass it a message. So when you, like for a very simple example, if you want to take the length of a list of numbers, you would, for, in Smalltalk, you'd write out your list, you know, one comma, two comma, three, and then call a message I don't actually know what they call it in small talk. Well, pretend it's size, but your your sentence is, you know, one comma two comma three in in brackets, space, the message size, period. So you're technically you're passing your your single argument on the left, and then your binary functions are infix. Uh Niel, from my understanding, is left to right, but it still has uh, it's unary functions prefix, not postfix, meaning that if you're calling the length, which I believe it's tally or count in, in Neal, I can't remember which one, um, tally is the, the length, you would go, uh, it wouldn't be bracket one comma two comma, or I guess it's not brackets, it'd be one, two, three space tally, that would be incorrect. It would be tally space one, two, three. So even though it's left to right in the case where you have a function that takes a single argument, a monadic or unary function, it's still prefix, which uh, is so it's very similar to small talk in the way that it reads left to right, except in that one case, which I'm not sure if that ends up having some kind of um, byproduct effect that you have to keep track of. But uh, it must have a profound effect, though, because that means if you have a function name or so any function, really, and, and you want to apply it to the result of an expression, you must parenthesize. Well, I'm and that's what I'm thinking. Um... But um, this just my thinking right now. It, it um, to be consistent with mathematical notation. So, f of x in brackets. So that uh, it it is it's it just reading things that way, like a function applied to x, and that's how you would express things mathematically, mm -hmm. um, and how most languages express things, and that's how Neal expresses things. So it's just usually the function is usually on the left, and the thing the function is applied to is usually on the right. That's what I would think the reasoning would be, but I can't exactly recall, and I don't think I'll find anything in our notes, my notes on that. I have to confess that the the uh, the effect of combining that with strand notation and with uh, the names of APL primitives is an absolute bear trap for an old APL programmer like me. <laughs> I kind of, because I've got decades of experience of expecting the right argument of reshape to be everything on the right. <laughs> but but this is interesting. Then then there must be some kind of look ahead, being that functions are also kind of first class. I'm a bit confused. Like if you write opposite, that's the negation. So opposite average 
and then something that we're taking the average of, then I'm confused as to how far to the right do we look. It's not that as soon as we see a, a, a unary function, we apply it to what it's what's on its immediate right, because that would be the opposite of average, which doesn't make much sense, but could be somehow combining, but it's not. So because there's another function name, then we keep doing going to the right, which essentially means if we have, if I understand it right, if, if I write a long sequence of function name, function name, function name, function name, function name, and then some data on the right, then we're back to normal APL running from right to left. Or just for the unary functions. Well, that's the only way you can really have function names after each other, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. But um... so, so anytime you have function name, function name, function name in a sequence followed by some data at the end, then we're running from right to left. Doesn't matter if they're unary or, or binary, because if you're binary and we're writing it like that, that means it's taking they're taking pairs as in the... Well, you, I mean, that's not how a binary function is written. What? Well, a binary function has its arguments on both sides, so neither of those function. No, no, not in, not in yeah, if I understand right, a binary function can just take a two-element array as right argument. If you don't give it a left argument, it will assume that the elements of the right argument are to be its arguments. Is that not correct? That's correct. You can write three slash four, or you can write slash three, four. I, I would still call that unary syntax. So Okay, so if you're using unary syntax... Sorry to split hairs. So that means if you're writing function name, function name, function name, function name, and so on, and then some data in the end, no matter what the nature of these functions are, everything runs from right to left. But if you're writing infix, then you run from left to right. So the language isn't really one or the other. It's kind of depending on how you use the functions, they can run right to left or left to right. And that certainly makes my head spin. Yeah. So if you had such a chain, if you imagine it, and one one of the unaries in that chain was uh, slash um, three uh, joined with whatever being computed on the uh, to the right. Um, the no, sorry, my head's spinning again. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe APL pure. So I I don't program in APL. I could could not get past the symbols. Um, and I'm but I and you know a value of APL programmers and Nial programmers, you know, is elegance and uh, simplicity. Uh, elegance in math and notation, and and uh, but I'm also a proponent of clarity. So. Um, putting brackets in that doesn't offend me to so to to show <laughs> the precedent order that you want it to be um, uh, executed in <laughs> uh, explicitly. I don't mind putting brackets in, but there are definitely you know to to um, to force bindings. Um, but the uh, there are there is implicit, and I don't know which is called left to right and which is called right to left, but there's implicit brackets in the notation true but they were trying to ha make them as simple and consistent and usable as possible would be some of the design reasoning behind that um so that's all if you if you really want to be explicit about how you what you order you want things to be done uh put the brackets in but i uh, i like the you know the example in the chat that we put up so um people on on, on the call can't or the can't see this, but it's average is slash, and then kind of in macro functional brackets, some comma tally. Uh, will that you know just allows average to be applied to um, 
presumably some data on the <laughs> like some yeah data on the on the right so he, here's a fun example i just came up with playing with neil it's an outdated version but exists on tried online we'll leave a link to that uh, where i have the expression uh plus times and then open paren 1020 close paren open paren 12 close paren it gives 50 what just happened so if i understand things correctly we're trying to apply plus it needs two arguments can't do that keep going to the right then we're doing multiplication needs two arguments has nothing on the left so we keep going to the right then we find two arguments to multiplication which are 1020 and 12 so multiply those to each other so using array multiplication one time uh, 10 times one is 10 20 times two is 40 so now we've got 10 40 and then we do the plus 10 plus 40 is 50. correct yeah and even though niel at first seemed very familiar to me as an apler this all of a sudden looks very alien almost like some stack based thing so wait are are binary functions prefix I no they they're were... both they're both. Okay, so if you change that to 10, 20 times 1, 2, does it still compile? Because the result of 10, 20 is a single array. And I thought plus, plus. So you can take, you can take the times and put inside between the 10, 20 and the 1, 2. Right? And, and that still works? Now, well, yes, because now you have a left argument on the left of, of times. So now it's it's plus, and then we can't continue. Because Wait, can't we? We're stuck. We need two arguments, I think. I think. I don't know. Let me. Shouldn't it call the plus on 1020? Oh, yeah. No, it would. Yeah, of course it would. Yeah. So it would say, plus, I'm sorry. Yes. I'm confused. You see how confused I get. Yeah. So plus 1020 times 1, 2 means the sum of 10 and 20 times 1, 2. No. Well, that's not right either. I have to say from the small examples, this this isn't messing me up yeah it gives it gives 30 but i'm not hold on so why does it give 30 plus 10 20 times 1 2 so we can go from the left plus 10 20 immediately evaluate that that's 30 times 1 2 oh it's um the the right is also a function all right that's a little weird <laughs> so it, it does the right wait what's and... the then it multiplies. Oh, so we've wrote out the result. Okay, I just need parentheses. Can you, can someone paste it to the chat? Because we're, I mean, actually, maybe it's better that we're just explaining through it. So just, just to recap, folks, we've got the first expression that we had was plus space times space in parentheses 1020 and then in parentheses 12. And the result of that was a uh, binary multiplication between the two lists which does element-wise multiplication, and that gives us what, 10 times 1 is 10, uh, and then 20 times 2 is 40, and then the plus does a reduction or does a addition on those two, which gives us 50. If we move the multiplication in between the two arrays, then that reads out plus 10, 20 times 1, 2. That gives us 30. And... Uh, yeah, so the problem is that... Well, yeah, the, the most important thing is that it doesn't... That's that's not the whole expression. The expression is write plus yeah. 1020 times 1, 2. So we write out the result of 
10 and 10, 10 and 20 summed. And then after we write out the result 30, we keep multiplying by one, two, which does give 30, 60, but never is written. Oh, I see, I see. I That's see. why if I, I have to parenthesize on the right. I keep forgetting that if I use a unary function, like right, then I must parenthesize everything on the right because it has short. Yes. Yeah. Right. So I assume you're doing this on like TIO or something versus in the REPL because the REPL, they're wouldn't be too much confusion here. Um, yeah, you wouldn't need this right function. <laughs> we were we were wrapping up, and then and then and then someone asked something about uh, precedence, and here we are, twenty minutes later. Lynn's going, "What did I sign up for?" <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, assignments are on the left. So we we had our example. Average is the division of sum and tally, and but that means. Is must be special. Is must have like long right scope, I guess. I don't know. What is is? What is is? It's, it's defining a yeah, defining a function. It's just notation. So I, it's ah, it's not a function. It's not a function. It's not a function. So it's assigning the function that's on the right hand side, the div sum tally. It's just making the word average, assigning that func assigning a function of any number of variables two would work the best uh or no any no any 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 array like any array yeah it's just defining average yeah and it, in my opinion it shouldn't be a function because the thing on the left is not a value that you want to pass in it's a name that you want to define so it's a different neither, neither is it a phrase yeah. symbol thing and um, so but that means is in the sense has long right scope mm -hmm. it, it takes the from here and to the rest of the expression now i, don't, I haven't made any exper experiments but and we should probably stop with this whether there's i can use i can do, can I do an inline assignment capture the result of is and and keep doing computation i i don't know but uh it, it's really interesting though when you just take something like that and do it a different way how much it it twists your mind you realize the patterns that you've actually got so ingrained that you really have to take a big step back and then think about it in a very different way i mean i i, I just look at this and say this is what my head's currently going through is a lot of the same stuff that somebody first encountering array languages that's feels like that's a good point it's humbling this thing <laughs> yeah I mean, it's just like it, it is humbling but it's also really kind of neat i mean i'm looking at it going wow and and you know i'm i'm bouncing all the things that i do know about it off in my head at the same time I guess, you know, um, something that Rob Pike mentioned, not everybody is built that way to go, that's kind of cool. <laughs> they just go, that's a mess. I'm out of here, right? <laughs> Cause for concern, though. <laughs> that if all of us are staring at this going, wait, what, what? For 10 minutes, if that's the beginner experience, <laughs> ten... <laughs> well, 10 minutes is nothing. Come on. How long do you expect people to want to learn a new language exactly. in 10 minutes? When you tell somebody, hey, go take a look at APL, you want them to give up after 10 minutes of staring and thinking this is line noise? But I mean, if it's if that's their first, if their first 10 minutes is being completely surprised by, by what they think should be quite simple. I could see that that is uh that's that's the nature of building out the tutorials and the and the introduction material right you want to surprise them in a positive way not surprise them in a very negative confusing way um you do want this element of surprise because that's important and I think that's important as well I would just 
in my own head going through that process though was really instructive it was quite neat i don't know what it's going to translate over audio <laughs> i promise that writing neil with like letters is is a lot better than listening <laughs> all right we will we will or so go ahead lynn so uh is it adam are you run are you running these on uh, neil interpreters somewhere my my kind of question is uh, yeah. does anybody know and i don't I think I know what the answer is, is no, but, um, you know, I downloaded the source code like when I, you know, a few months ago and I compiled it on my local computer and I can run a local version. And I'm just one wondering if anyone knows, like, is there a version out there in the cloud on the Neal site? I'll go look in the Neal site, but I think the answer is no, there isn't sort of a, you know, uh, the interpreter out there where somebody can just plug in these, uh, computations and see what happens so you have to have your own version so that makes it limited to those of us who can download the code and 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 uh, compile it and make and run it on our local machines um so that's just i if we if i wanted or somebody wanted to make neal more available to people having a public you know an open a version where people could just type in these expressions uh, might be useful that's one thing so lynn that's already done yeah, but it's not the same thing though. Tier runs a script. What Lin is asking, for, and that's that's referenced on the website. Uh, what Lin is asking for, if I think, if I understand right, is an interactive one, right, where you can add the same experience you would get offline, where you can write something, get the results, write something else to use that, and like we know from pretty much every array language. Yeah, there's one of those on the there's one of those offered or linked to it offered on the website plus downloads for Mac, Linux and uh and Windows. But I just yeah, sort of a just a portal somewhere where you can type in the al code and see what happens. Um that's already out there compile ready for that you could do that. I'm going to look into that and so my comment on all of these different uh, mysteries about what's going on here what's the what's the parsing structure what's the pre the operator precedence what does all this mean um and that's where you know it's the same with when you're communicating in human language sometimes you have to be more explicit about what you want or people will not understand what you are asking of them uh, uh this language will allows a lot of uh, surprising things because you have to think in nested arrays and they're what we're uncovering here is that there is definitely some implicit precedence, whether it's left to right, right to left, or a combination of both. Uh, it's in there. It's in the design of the language. Um, I think our design principle would be what looks most uh, like math, like ma mathematical notation and the way that people would interpret math for the most part. And sometimes you do want to use parentheses and in math. Anyways, I so all of as you see, like lots of things, lots of combinations of pluses and and multiplications and arrays can lead to very mysterious behavior. But there's there is some consistency there. I I believe me or trust me, there is. That's yeah, I I think is the the thing that was most confusing for in case the listener missed it was that uh, we weren't parenthesizing the expression and where. Adam was running it on Try It Online TIO, which is the closest thing to a you know online Try EPL or BQM pad, but it's not exactly the same thing. You don't get the same experience, so you have to wrap your expression or or proceed it with a write. Is that we were all expecting A B, you know, and we only saw A. 
And it really, the expression was yielding AB, but it, right was only taking the first thing that was evaluated. And I think actually it, it does make sense. And it's actually an exploration of a space that J and BQN and APL can't do because they overload all of their Unicode symbols or, or ASCII graphs to have both a monadic and dyadic definition. But when you are giving names to your operations that all have a fixed arity, you now have the ability to say, well, we know what the arity of this function is. It takes two arguments. If you want to put it prefix or infix, you can do both of that, which then leads you to be able to do something like the average function, right? Like if you're, if you're, fun if all you have is atlases and you want to define a average uh, function using an atlas, if you don't give it, if you don't give the language the ability to put a binary function prefix, you then, you then have to do something different with atlases and basically say that whenever you have a pattern of unary function, binary function, unary function inside an atlas, so you'd have to say specifically when we have like a atlas of length three where the arity of each function follows the pattern one, two, one, you then get what is the equivalent of the pattern that forms average. But because we can do both prefix and infix, you can just say, oh, form an atlas the atlas is going to give you two things because it has two unary functions and then just prefix that with a, a division and then that just fault forms your pattern. So I can see why, you know, it's a little bit more confusing, you know, from a, a first, a beginner's point of view that like, why do we have two different ways to, you know, position a binary function? But then if you look at the average and think, how do you, how do you form that? It basically, you need something like that or an alternative, which arguably, you know, uh, I actually think that's an interesting space, like forming a list of functions, looking at the arity of each function with your interpreter, and then forming a different pattern. That's a, to that's a totally cool idea, very complicated, very hard to parse from a user's point of view. But uh, the point is, is that I don't, I don't think it's a, there's, there's zero motivation behind why the folks that designed the interpreter did it this way. I'm pretty sure that at the time they said, oh, this leads it to, you know, insert property Y, which is, it's, it's nice or nicer than the alternative. Um, it just isn't always immediately obvious. Yeah, I, I think this is pretty fascinating and, and I'm intrigued with it. Um, I don't feel like I need this kind of thing in my day-to-day -day APL programming, but certainly when I write JavaScript, how I wish there was a way to use these prefix functions that take parenthesized arguments in fix instead. Just do what Neil is doing. Let me put one thing on the left and another on the right and do everything from left to right because that's how the language works. That would be so wonderful. And with that, I will do are, my plug. <laughs> yeah, 30 minutes later. <laughs> well, if people want to get in touch with us and uh, they want to leave messages or uh, responses or questions, um, you can contact us at contact at arraycast.com. And uh, we welcome your input. And um, this has been fascinating, I think, Again, with Adam's last question, we went in down into something we weren't expecting, but I think it's really interesting. And, and it does show you how important a lot of these languages that sort of... Neal's still there, but it, it, it's kind of drifted off. It still has a lot of things to offer if you're, you're into these kind of things, interested in those possibilities. Yeah, 
And I will, I will follow up from what Bob said. Thank you so much, Lynn, for taking your time to, you know, share your history and, and your experience. Uh, like, I'm not sure how many folks out there have the, you know, the knowledge that you do of the history of this project. So I feel uh, extremely privileged to have been able to get you on the podcast and to pick your brain about this stuff, because uh, I love this, finding out about the history of this stuff. And, um, you know, I, I walked one time through the Queens campus and I think I was looking for, uh, uh, you know, a little plaque, you know, homage to Iverson, because I think Iverson did his undergrad there, but I couldn't find anything. But then um, to, to find out that there was, you know, maybe not a, a plaque, you know, <laughs> saying Iverson went here, but uh, that, you know, this history of a pocket of the array language community, you know, is was not just, you know, a pocket at the time, but it sounded like there was some massive research and collaboration between MIT and Queens and um, definitely like an interesting piece of history that I'm glad we got on podcast so it doesn't get, you know, uh, lost in the annals of time. Um, and yeah, just thank you so much for taking your time. This has been a blast having you on to chat about all this. Yeah, absolutely. I did. Uh, I took this opportunity because I wanted this to be recorded, too. It's a period of time and a history um, that uh, is not alive for many people, but it, it's interesting for, for those of us on this call and, uh, and listening to the podcast. So thanks for having me. No, absolutely. And with that, I think we will say happy array programming. Happy, happy array, array programming. programming.